It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. When the internet first became mainstream, it brought with it a wave of excitement and optimism. The World Wide Web is a vast network of websites designed to cater to your every whim. But what if I told you that the sites Google and other search engines allow you to access is just the tip of the iceberg? The internet you use on a daily basis is merely the surface web. Take a deeper dive and you'll find yourself on the dark web, a hidden, lawless part of the internet. Here, you can find illegal markets where drugs, weapons, and sinister services are offered. Welcome to the Silk Road. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. Launched in 2011, the Silk Road was an anonymous black market on the dark web, run by a man known as Dread Pirate Roberts. The Silk Road was undetectable from your typical search engines, so accessing it was no easy feat. Getting to the dark web required specific software known as a Tor browser. The Tor browser allows users to access a network of onions, which are messages wrapped in layers of encryption offering high levels of anonymity to those who use them. Through the Silk Road, customers had access to a wide array of illegal products available for purchase with cryptocurrency, including drugs, fake IDs, pornography, and weapons. The site also offered dangerous and harmful services, such as hacking, identity theft, and even murder for hire. The same year it was created, the Silk Road caught the FBI's attention, leading them to launch an investigation into the site and its mysterious kingpin. FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell led the infamous Silk Road investigation, dubbed Operation Onion Peeler. As the co-founder of Naxo, a cybersecurity firm, Chris continues to offer his expertise through investigative solutions and protection against cyber threats. Today, he joins me with a look at how the FBI was able to take down this multi-billion dollar malevolent market. Chris Tarball, it's such an honor to have you here with me today. First and foremost, of course, thank you for your service. Former FBI special agent and computer forensic examiner with the FBI. You were also the lead investigator on the Silk Road investigation, which was a really exciting sort of seminal case into the intersection between the dark web and cryptocurrency and what the criminal realm looked like. So walk us through the beginning of the first introduction to the case that you had um, and your first introduction to the dark web and all of its nefarious conduct. Sure. First, thanks for having me on, Emily. I appreciate the invitation. And so I, uh, I took down a case, uh, anonymous Lulset case, uh, and a lot of that investigation in the FBI, we'd sit around and we'd hit an IP address and we'd investigate that IP address. Uh, and IP address is an internet protocol address. It's uh, almost like the telephone number for your computer. And 
a lot of those investigations, you look at either the IP address and trace that or the money and you, you trace that aspect of it and try to find the bad guy and what's going on. Um, around that time, right after the anonymous case is we were coming across a lot of IPs that came back to Tor or uh, the onion router, they called it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that was a network that was made by actually the U.S. Navy um, back in the day. And it was, uh, it's a protocol where you can't trace it. Um, I know I can only go to one hop and there's many hops in it. Um, that's why they call it the onion because it's wrapped in encryption. Like an onion has different layers. Um, so a lot of our investigations were coming up on that. Uh, part of the anonymous case, one of the guys we arrested, a guy named Anarchaos, he, uh, he was using Tor to hide himself. Um, and so after the anonymous case went down and we were kind of sitting around, we said, well, a lot of these investigations, uh, they can't be found because they're Tor. Let's take a look at Tor. And so the group, uh, we call it the, the bullpen. We sat in the middle of the FBI in CY2 in New York City, and we uh, we came up with a, a Tor investigation case. And that, that was 26 different Tor onion services. Um, and an onion service is a web page on Tor. So it doesn't end in .com. It ends in .onion. Um, and one of, those, one of those sites was called the Silk Road. And what did you find? So we got onto the Silk Road and we literally found a website that sold absolutely anything. Uh, you could buy whatever you wanted on there. You could buy drugs from Afghanistan. You could buy hacking services. You could buy hacking tools. You could buy murders for hire if you wanted to. How do these criminals find these secret sites that are untraceable and so encrypted? And if it's so hidden, how does one even find it? So they, well, it it was started. First, the site was started. And then they go on the regular web and the forums and you start advertising it. Like, hey, do you guys want to get drugs delivered to your house? You know, here's a great site. Or um, in this case for the Silk Road, the, the, the founder of the site went on and, and tried to act like he was someone else and say, Hey, I'm looking for a site. I've heard about this site. Does anybody know about it? And sort of this underground campaign of, of getting the, the URL or the, the onion site out there. Describe what it was like in the bullpen when you landed upon this. It sounds like a Craigslist for, for crime. You know, was there any part of you that was like, how can this be real? What was the mood like? Well, we sort of knew about it. So it had been talked about in Congress. Uh, um, the Senator Schumer had said on the floor of Congress that this site needs to be taken down. Law enforcement needs to look at it. Um, but really, it was kind of a drug site. Um, and not until we opened a general investigation into Tor and the illegal activities that were happening on Tor did we start really getting into it. So it wasn't the first time I saw it. But once I got on there and really started digging in to see what was happening, it was insane to me what you could get in, in the quality of the drugs and how easy they made it and instructions on how to safely have drugs sent to your house. At that time, did you know about the volume of people using it and selling on it? Not at all. Not at, when I first got into the site, I had I had no idea. No one I really knew outside of the squad I was on uh, kind of knew about it. None of my friends or family had ever heard of it. So, um, which changed after the day we took it down. But uh, but it was the, the the volume until we found the server and was able to go through the chat logs and really what was happening on there had no idea the amount of volume that was going through the site. And what was that volume? What was the eventual conclusion? Um, I think at one at the at the takedown of Silk Road, I believe there was fifty five hundred different drug dealers or offerers on there, and then you know thousands upon thousands of users. Okay, so walk us through from that moment and then, you know, you you take it down. Walk us through the Silk Road investigation and what that case was like. 
Sure. So once we got a copy of the server, we we found it through some investigative techniques in Iceland. We flew over to Iceland and, and described to them what sort of case. And they opened a parallel case. So uh, they had their own investigation. And um, me and Saren Turner, the, the investigator, uh, the AUSA on the case, we flew over there and we talked to them. Um, and, you know, we told them about the case. We told them where it was. Let's let's get it. Um, and they said, okay, they'll open a case and start to get a search warrant. And they went to the data center. We weren't there. We flew back to New York. Um, and then they sent us a copy of the hard drive. Um, they sent it to Saren. And then Saren hand-delivered it to me. And he said, hey, I got to run back to my desk. And so I took the hard drive, went in the back, and plugged it in uh, into the lab. And it was encrypted. The whole drive was encrypted. So case closed. I mean, there's nothing I can do with it. There's nothing I can do with the case. And, and, you know, moving forward, you can't break the encryption. It it was too tough. Um, So I I picked up the phone and called Saren and uh, gave him the bad news. And he goes, oh, I forgot to tell you, the Icelandic police encrypted it. Here's the password. Um, So I typed in the password and lo and behold, uh, there is the complete server, uh, the history of every transaction that ever happened on the site, um, all the chat logs, um, including um, communications with backup servers, uh, so the keys to the kingdom were there, except for the people running it. Um, we still couldn't find exactly who's running it, just what was happening on the site. So we had the what, but not the who yet. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Before we get to the who, sure. can you walk us through the timeline of the what? Because you just then, you know, you make it sound like it's, it sounds so easy and effortless, but I understand the resources deployed and your the human capital, of course, is tremendous. So is this minutes, hours, weeks that it takes to obtain this server and to make a copy and then to unencrypt it? You know, in the, the movies, it takes 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Once you locate it, is it fast or is this something that takes a long time? No, unfortunately, I can't watch any of those movies because it's never true. Uh, it never matches exactly the way it goes. So once we find it and we fly to Iceland and describe what's going on, um, that's you know that that's months finding it. Okay. Uh, once we get our hands on it and open it up, that's minutes. That really is typing in the password and. and it's there. And then we load it up into a special program and it looks just like a web server. Uh, and then, you know, we're astounded. We're astounded by what we're finding. Um, and again, this is just the contents of the web server. Um, we did not find the cryptocurrency or the money um, and we didn't find the who yet. So we're still working on that. That is part of the investigation. But we have the contents of all the criminal activity. OK, so then what happened with going on to find the who and how did you zero in on Ross Ulbricht? So around that time, there were multiple investigations into Silk Road. Um, the DEA had an investigation. The IRS had an investigation. Um, HSI, Homeland Security, had an investigation. And there was a group in Baltimore that also had an investigation. Um, we kind of held it close to us that we had the server. Um, but then there was a deconfliction meeting down in D.C. Um, I was fairly busy with the case, so I didn't go down. But I, I, I called in on the, the video conferencing system. Um, and, and the different groups talked about what they they had and what they wanted. And, and then we finally told them that we had the server. Um, one of the... Okay, I feel like Deacon, I'm, I'm picturing like all the different agencies and it's like the sharks and the jets and everyone's fighting. And then you're like, and then finally they twisted my arm and I was like, all right, guys, this whole time I've had the server. Or was it a little more collaborative than that? Because the way that I'm picturing it is that essentially you guys had to be forced by the substitute teacher to all get along. 
It was not collaborative. It was, it was, yeah, unfortunately it wasn't. And, and a lot of them would, you know, the, the one group down in Baltimore would say they had sweat equity was the term they used. Uh. So they had been working on this for years. Well, just because you're slow at getting the answer doesn't mean you deserve the answer. Um, so <laughs> a little bit of shade 11 minutes into the podcast. Well, I mean, two of those agents got arrested at the end of this case. If we want to go forward with that. So they, they spent six years in federal prison because of uh, their activities. So uh, that's a that bonus shade episode coming up. That's right. All right. This is this. You, this is your own movie right now as well. No wonder you sure. don't watch movies because the, the truth is stranger than fiction. They did make a movie about this, but it wasn't very good. So <laughs> it, it was too too far off. Um, but at this, after this deconfliction move, uh, we, we partnered with a guy named Jared Dayagan. He was the HSI investigator out of Chicago. Uh, he started his Silk Road investigation because he was the agent out at Chicago Air International Airport um, who saw packages coming in. And he's like, these just look weird. These these, And he started grouping them together. Um, started why? With one single why, package. Why did they look weird? The, the, the packaging, the handwriting, well, what about it? I mean, there's millions of packages that come through O'Hare. What sure. triggered he, him he here? He picked out some nuance in it, and he mm. started an investigation and the, you know started putting packages together, and then he went online and put them to, connected them to orders. Um, so he was actually having physical packages of drugs coming into the United States and then connected it back to Silk Road. Um, Joe, Jared's a great guy and he got on, on the meeting and he was open and honest and said, this is my case. This is what I'm doing. Um, I sat and watched on TV and I said, I'm going to call that guy. So as soon as that meeting ended, I called him. I said, come to New York, wait till you see what I have. Um, and he came to New York and we kind of put our cases together. Um, Jared had then, you know, at this point he had made his way into the organization through an undercover investigation. Um, so he was starting to talk to this guy named DPR, Dread Pirate Roberts, who was running Silk Road. Um, and Jared, as a federal agent, DPR had no idea he was, he was talking to a federal agent during this whole time. Dread Pirate Roberts, of course, after The Princess Bride. Correct. Best movie of all time. I, and, I agree. <laughs> and so as now the synergy is occurring between you and Jared, um, now what happens in the way of honing in on Dread Pirate Roberts and trying to identify who the human is behind that character? So we start using, you know, uh, traditional cyber investigative techniques. Um, we find that Dread Pirate Roberts sent undercover Jared um, access to a, a Jabber server. And a Jabber server is just a communication server, kind of like a, a chat server online. Uh, but it was through an Onion site, so we couldn't trace it. But through his instructions, he sent some screenshots. And in his screenshots, he was in Pacific time. Um, so now we had narrowed down our world to 124th of the world. We knew what time zone he was in. Um, he's out on the West Coast of the United States. Um, so we took that clue and then we had a couple other clues. Uh, an IRS agent had, he had gone back and looked on, uh, used a powerful tool that, you know, that luckily the FBI has access to, uh, along with everybody else. He used the Google, uh, <laughs> to go back and look to see the very first posting of when, uh, Silk Road was put on, uh, on the internet. Uh, and it was a guy who wanted to start a website and he needed help uh, programming the website for it was going to run on Tor on an Onion web server. And it was also going to use Bitcoin or a cryptocurrency. Um, but if you had any help, please reach out to him at his email address, ross.albrick at gmail.com. Um, to us, that was a clue. Um, we did started digging into who Ross Albrick was and found out that Ross Albrick was living in San Francisco and matched that with our time. And again, for timeline purposes, how long after, let's say the, the, the collaboration meeting, the deconflict meeting, how long after that was this point where you identified, okay, there's a Ross Ulbricht that lives in San Francisco? Months, weeks? 
we were about probably about six weeks, six to seven weeks afterwards. Um, we had collected other information, and we you, you've seen those movies. You talk about like the FBI movies. You've seen those big charts on the walls with all the lines and that thing. We had one of those. We drew one up on the wall. It was back in the lab, and we started you know connect the dots and all the things. Um, but then, like I told you earlier, when we found the server, we found the server had been communicating with another server from Iceland into Philadelphia. So we got a search warrant for this server in Philadelphia and come to find out it was the backup server. So when the server needed a copy, it would send it back to there. So we went down to Philadelphia and got a copy of it and brought it back. Um, and through that, we found out that someone was logging into that server in Philadelphia with a computer named Frosty. Um, one connection we had then made is the email asking for help uh, for Ross at dot Albrick at gmail.com. Uh, the username that posted that was frosty. Oh. So now we have a bit of evidence that only the person running Silk Road would know the name Frosty and name his computer Frosty. Um, and then we connected to that public information, connected to the Gmail account, um, started doing surveillance, uh, coming to find out Ross Albrick was online every time uh, Dread Pirate Roberts was also online, um, which is a big clue in our world, um, when the, a real person and an identity come together. And so we decided to, uh, we put together an affidavit and swore out an arrest warrant. I swore out an arrest warrant on Ross Albrick and flew the team out to San Francisco to see what we could find. And that's when you discovered him in a San Francisco public library. Well, no, that that story, yes, he ended up in the library. We discovered him in his house, and we sat in his house, uh, not in his house, outside his house, down the block, um, waiting for you know some sort of clue or something, because we needed it to come out. Um, I had prior, again, the same guy that was on tour for the anonymous case, a guy named uh, Anar Chaos. We used a search, we did a search warrant and a SWAT team to arrest him. Um, and when we entered his house with the SWAT team, he closed his computer and the computer was encrypted. It took us a long time to get into that evidence. So from that lesson learned, we knew that we needed to get Ross with his laptop open. Um, so when I flew out to San Francisco, I sat down with the San Francisco boss the the cyber boss uh and he had said okay we're gonna I, he came up with a plan on how to do it um he said i'm going to send in a swat team when ross is online and we'll grab the computer and have all our events and so i explained to him that, that we've done that before it doesn't work um so he sat there for a few minutes and thinking about it and he told me he said okay i know what we'll do we'll send in three swat teams <laughs> Um, so the plan was to send three SWAT teams. One was going to rappel down from a helicopter. Uh, one was going to come up through the basement, and the other one was going to come in through all the doors. Um, and that's when we said, well, let us sit in the neighborhood and just see what we can find. Maybe, you know, maybe we'll find some other way of doing this. And we sat in the neighborhood, and we waited for uh, the first day. Nothing happened. Nothing came out. Um, and so we were sitting in a cafe in san francisco at the around the corner from ross's house and ross uh we got a text from the plainclothes surveillance fbi agents uh that ross just walked out of his house and he's carrying his laptop over his shoulder um he's walking down the block so we all scurry we we run um i don't know if you've ever played spot the fed in san francisco (laughs) but we all look like feds you know short haircut cargo pants big bulge on our untucked shirt you know on the side with the gun sticking out it it looks kind of funny it's pretty easy for us to, to to stick out in san francisco um and i passed ross right in the crosswalk um, I had his arrest warrant sitting in my pocket. Um, I wanted to tackle him to the ground, put handcuffs on him, and take him away then. Um, but the better of me thought, well, I need, I, when I arrested Anar Chaos, his laptop got closed and I couldn't get into it. Um, and there was some information that Ross did the same thing with his laptop, that it was encrypted and we wouldn't be able to get into it. So, Ross, go ahead. You got a question? 
Well, yeah. Flesh okay. out that crosswalk scene. Sorry. Did you make eye contact? Did Kaiser say they look did. at you? I did, but he didn't look at me. Okay. And then so, also, while, while I have you in this moment, so sure. um, I lived in San Francisco for a number of years. And, you know, prosecutors alleged that the site took in $1.2 billion in revenue and generated $80 million in commission for Ulbricht from 2011 to 2013. So describe for us this house that he lived in. It, was it a huge mansion? What neighborhood was it in? No, it's actually a, a row house that he rented. He just rented an apartment. It wasn't a full house. He had roommates. Um, and so he was on the, I believe, the second floor, which also, you know, would kind of collide with our SWAT team plan of sending him through a helicopter in the basement and that sort of sort of the idea. So, again, we wanted to arrest him out, out and about with the laptop. And were the roommates participants? Did they have any idea? Did you determine later? We interviewed him later. We don't believe they had any idea. They had just rented uh, it to him uh, and he paid with cash. Okay. So you've passed him in the crosswalk. You wanted to arrest him. You didn't because you wanted to preserve the information on the laptop. Correct. So then what happens? So he, he passes me and he goes into the cafe that we were just in um, and kind of looks around and decides it's a little cr crowded. I square the block and come back around across the street and I'm sitting on a, a bench outside a hardware store um, across from the cafe. And then Jared comes over and he joins me. Uh, Jared's out there with me. Um, Ross comes out of the cafe and then walks over next door to the library in the library. The main part of the library is on the second floor. So he kind of goes up and he goes and he sits in a window that we can see him in the window. Uh, and we see him open his laptop. This is exactly what we want. The laptop's open and unlocked. Um, so Jared, we decide, hey, Jared, why don't you log in and see if you can start talking to him? Um, so Jared opens his undercover laptop as we sit on the bench and he starts chatting with DPR. Um, so we have DPR online typing away. We see him typing and responding and we're looking in the window. And this is the first time we now see Ross, the real person, is typing the same time DPR is typing to us. We've connected that virtual world. Um, so I give the uh, execute command uh, to the team and I say, you know, let's get him, but let him get away if you want. I need the laptop. Get the laptops the most important. Right. Take the gun, leave the cannoli. Exactly. Exactly. You know, stop rhyming. I mean it. Anybody <laughs> want to be not? So, um, and then so, a, a, a female agent who is part of the surveillance team, she doesn't look like an agent at all, the way she's dressed and the way she's acting. She comes and she sits at the table and she sits across from Ross. Uh, and she's reading through a magazine or something like that. So he's sitting in this library running a $1.2 billion drug empire uh, online and with a FBI agent sitting right across from him, has no idea, talking online with another federal agent that's sitting outside the office. So didn't, know, didn't expect anything. So then a, a female agent and a male agent who are older um, they're part of the surveillance team. They they walk into the library and they walk in around behind uh, behind uh, Ross and they and the female agent goes f you really loud in the library and then punches the male agent. Well, Ross thought that was pretty exciting, so he turned around to see what was going on behind him. And the little female agent that was sitting at the table pulled the laptop right across. Uh, and then another agent, a guy named Todd, comes in and just put his hand on his shoulder and told Ross that he was under arrest. Um, and then uh, it led him out to me. Uh, I explained to Ross, you know, who we were and what was going on. Um, and he just turned white. And uh, and that was the arrest of Ross Ulbrich. And in that moment, you knew that he knew exactly what was going on. Did you see any element or reaction of surprise on his part? Um, he was very, very nervous. I mean, he had never been arrested before. Um, and it wasn't until we brought him out and he, we sat him in the van um, and I showed him his arrest warrant that it was, you know, which is very, you know, 
tough for some people to see the United States of America v. Ross Ulbrich, a.k.a. DPR, a.k.a. Dread Pirates, Roberts. And he kind of put it all together. And he knew that, you know, this wasn't just, uh, you know, uh, some stupid arrest or anything like that. They, they His secret world had come crashing down. And I will say that, you know, he had lived this secret life for a long time running the site. Um, it is a bit of a relief to cyber criminals sometimes when, you know, Oh, I don't have to live the lie anymore. This guy knows my secret. Um, and so it was, you know, after a couple minutes, you know, I double checked that he's okay and didn't need medical help. Um, but then, you know, it kind of was like a weight lifted off him. More of the Fox true crime podcast coming up. Walk us through exactly his role. So obviously he created this entire platform. And when you talk about that, the undercover agent Jared was communicating with the DPR, you know, this DPR that the the individual Ross Ulbricht was collecting a commission off of these illicit transactions. But what participatory role did he play in them? Because I was envisioning, you know, a hosting site where criminal A could ask criminal B, you know, or user could ask seller I'm, I would like to buy drugs. And then seller says, here you go. Right. So there's a sort of, I, I, in my head, a facilitation component, and then there's an augment that seems to have occurred. So what level of communication, what would he be communicating about DPR as his role of facilitator? So, so DPR created the site and allowed people to put posts and then he allowed users to come in and then he held the Bitcoin cryptocurrency in escrow. Um, so customer service was very important for him. So if, if you wanted to buy drugs on the site, you would put your Bitcoins in, you'd hold them until the, and then when you said that you were satisfied with the drugs you received, then the dealer would then get paid the Bitcoin. So he was very you know, he would interact with that. He ran a staff of people um, that offered customer support um, all the way down to enhanced um, features within the site. Um, and really, you know, there's there's tons of messages where DPR put on there and says, you know, I'm the captain of the ship. If you don't like my rules, get the hell off. Um, and then he took a 10 percent commission for every sale. And that staff that he ran, did he know who they were in real life or were these also characters that he located on the Internet and employed them uh, virtually without knowing exactly their identities? So it's funny, like he he. So the site ran fake, sold fake IDs. One of the big things he also, he bought fake IDs off off the site once, um, and he bought nine different identities because he needed to do that to buy servers around the world. You need to provide a picture ID for for that. Um, but he required anyone who worked for the site to send a picture ID. Um, so once we got after his arrest, we got his computer and we got a, a section of his computer uh, unencrypted. Um, we found like a stash of the employees, and all of the employees had sent him real IDs. Um, I could never figure out why if i'm uh, an administrator on a site that sells fake ids why i would send another criminal my real id um so he didn't know them in person um they were all over the world there was a guy in australia there was a guy in uh, near richmond virginia there was a guy in ireland um so uh the, another guy in uh thailand um so he had people working for him all over the world but never knew them in real life and tell us a little bit more about ross ulbricht the human where was he from? What was he like? What was his training in? Obviously computers, but... Uh, actually, no. Uh, Ross didn't have oh. a, a background in computers. He was uh, into uh, chemistry. Um, he had advanced degrees from University of Pennsylvania in, uh, in chemistry. He actually wrote a textbook uh, as part of it. And uh, he was from Texas, grew up in Texas. Uh, his family, um, he spent time in Australia. He was all over the world traveler, has, has a great family, um, good support system. Um, you know, Ross was a, the, the time I spent with him. So I arrested him. Uh, we spent some 
some time that night together, um, processing him and then taking him down to jail. Um, then, uh, because I know jail has a, has a horrible, uh, breakfast or so the san francisco jail holds federal prisoners just until they're arraigned the next morning so they, they're they're not the same as the regular prison it's kind of like a holding cell i knew he wouldn't get fed well so i bought him breakfast so we had breakfast the next morning together um before we went to court um he was a nice guy uh i enjoyed speaking with him obviously he asked for a lawyer so we didn't talk about the case um but but we spoke uh just as two men and it was uh it was a it was good conversation so how do you think that he viewed the illicit site and the subsequent, you know, billions of dollars worth of crimes that that were spurred from it. Did he have a level of detachment then? You know, there were murders for hire. There there's massive drug use. You know, there was a lot of these are these are not okay. But it sounds like he yes, great, nice guy. Then was there a disassociation from the content of what he was essentially running as maybe in his mind was simply a business? Yeah, I don't want to speculate what was in Ross's mind. Um, the only thing I can do, the, there was a, a diary um, that he kept on his computer that we were able to get after the arrest. Um, and you can kind of show in, just in the writing sort of the change of mindset um, where someone had stolen money from him to begin with and he hired someone to have that person uh, killed. Um, and, and it was, you know, he was very emotional about it and painstaking in his writing. Um, and then he had other people killed and, and the, the, the guy came back and at the, the last one and said, well, I can't really kill him because he's got roommates. Uh, we'd have to kill all of them. And he's like, all right, just kill them all. So it, it was sort of a, uh, in the writings uh, of him, it was very callous and kind of changed. Um, but I, I don't know what was in his mind. I, I, and, you know, and, and no one was actually ever killed. Uh, just, you know, some people say, you know, they, they go back and forth on, you know, he didn't really do this, but he did order that and he did pay for it. So, you know, he had in his, and then he was tricked. People were stealing from him. Mm-hmm. Um, so he believed that he had people killed. Um, while while no one was actually killed, they were they were scamming him out of his cryptocurrency. At the time of his arrest, he was thirty one. Did his you said he had a good family? Did his parents play an active role in support at that time? And were they very shocked? I didn't speak to his parents. Uh, I, I don't know what I don't want to put words in their mouth. Um, I know that they were at his, his court appearances um, and very supportive to this day uh, of, you know, at least his mother is very active in in get, trying to get him um, released from prison. On what grounds? I, I don't I don't know what her legal defense is on it, but uh, I know it's gone up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court has, has denied the case. Um, I think all the only thing he has left is a presidential pardon. What was interesting as well about this case from a legal perspective is the notion of Bitcoin as a currency, which it sort of represents to me that oftentimes the law has not caught up with technological advances. And therefore, good defense attorneys will try to say, well, look, the law doesn't apply because this doesn't fit neatly into the existing rubric. But here the judge did rule indeed that Bitcoin is a currency for these purposes and therefore correct surmounted to laundering and the like and the remainder of his charges. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, no, I mean, you're 100% correct that the law does not keep up with technology. I mean, we still use telephone laws for computer crimes. Uh, you know, we do a PRTT is a pen registry trap and trace, which is a, a way of collecting phone information. We still do that on computers and, and email accounts. Um, we still use T3 or wiretaps uh, for a telephone, but for a computer. Nothing's been updated on any of that information uh, on how to get those legal proceedings. So, um, you know, I think we're, we're dealing with a global crime here, so it's very hard to have the individual laws in each country um you know some of uh, uh ross's uh co-conspirators uh they did their time and already out 
um, you know, they're from other countries or did time in those countries. Um, so it's, it's a different legal system uh, across each, you know, for, especially for cybercrime, um, each country. So it, it, it's difficult. Right. And here, the severity of the crimes and the, um, you know, the weight of the penalties is underscored by the fact that all of his sentences are to be served and he's currently serving concurrently. You yeah, know, that, that sent- strikes a, a significant message to perps here as a deterrent quality as well, that this is not something that you will get out easily or quickly from here in this country. Yeah, no, he was sentenced to two life sentences plus 40 years, which mm-hmm. I believe is much more time than uh, El Chapo even gotten. Yeah, I know. Um, a little bit of basic X's and O's here. You mentioned that you immediately shut down the site Silk Road upon finding it. However, no. DPR, okay, because I was going to say DPR kept being active. So how do you balance as law enforcement um, surveilling a site that is active in illegal criminal conduct and worrying about potential fatal consequences to running of that while collecting evidence enough to move forward with the prosecution and the successful constitutional shutdown of something like that? Sure. Yeah. No, that's a, a really a tough balance. And, and luckily I had superiors that they were making that call. I mean, we were coming, this case came right after Fast and Furious, um, which was a, a big ATF case where, mm-hmm. you know, uh, undercover guns were sold and some of those guy, guns were tied to murders. So the appetite for running, uh, you know, under, undercover like that or allowing the site to go too far, um, you know, we, it, it was maybe, Maybe six weeks between finding the site and the arrest of Ross. Um, I think if we weren't showing progress towards putting a face on DPR, they probably would have had to uh, take down the site. Um, but because the investigation was moving so quickly, you know, my superiors let it run out. Um, you know, the, the, the Silk Road case was a three pronged approach. We wanted to uh, arrest the, the administrators of the site. We wanted to take down the site and show people that, you know, the, this tour onion servers, um, can be penetrated if you know if things go right um and and it's not just a safe haven for criminals to operate in um and we wanted to take the cryptocurrency we didn't want we wanted to make sure they didn't get their money back um so we had to you know all three were you know i think if we missed one of those it probably wouldn't have been as successful um have we seen other dark markets pop up if you just take the site down um it's pretty easy for the site just to pop back up a week later just like cartels Quick question about the cryptocurrency, which I assumed all of those those assets were seized. Um, were they immediately converted to dollars, nope. or did the so, value then plummet, like <sighs> cryptocurrency has, and now the government has a fraction of its value? No, um, I believe there was there was we had a, a hundred seventy seven over one hundred seventy seven thousand bitcoins mm. at the time, um, which is a, a big and, and we when we seized it on the day Silk Road went down, I think it was around one hundred ten. Um, and so imagine where it went to by the time it was sold. Uh, they were sold off by the marshals um, in blocks after that, uh, big, big chunks of it. So and it was a, a pretty good auction. Um, people always ask, you know, let's, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars. Um, where does that go um, when assets like that are seized and they are sold at auction? Uh, it goes to further operate undercover operations within uh, federal law enforcement. So uh, that money was used to get further catch more criminals. That's right. And sometimes judges will rule they go to victims compensation funds and the like. So tell us a little bit about the dark web, because this case occurred, you know, about 10 years ago now. Tell us, you know, to your point, Sites are shut down, servers are shut down, and then they just sort of pop back up. So tell us about how law enforcement manages that and what the status is currently about the dark web. 
So when we got involved, the dark web, no one knew about it. And, you know, that's one of the things that w- was difficult for me after the case is, you know, it was on the front page of the news. Um, you know, it did, it, it kind of provided a roadmap for people like, oh, Tor, let me go check this out. And then maybe I can, there's other sites I can go buy drugs on or yeah. buy murders for hires on. Um, you know, it was kind of quiet before then, but then, you know, the news blew it up. Um, you know, I, I was completely wrong. I thought after Silk Road went down, I thought, you know, Two life sentences plus forty years. Who who would possibly open one of these sites after this? Um, and I also, you know, cryptocurrency. Obviously, only criminals use that. Um, so I was completely wrong on both fronts, and, and I'll admit to that today. Um, you know, so the sites have uh, really blown up since then. Uh, Tor is still being run. Uh, there's a lot of bad sites out there even now. Um, I don't recommend anyone going there. Um, you know, there's a lot of places they've set up as. Uh, what's called they'd be traps where they have malware on them um so they try to get you know people like oh i want to go check out the dark web and see what's going on there and really you're just going to a site and downloading malware onto your computer um so for for those that are curious and not really know where they're going and doing um there's nothing good on there there's nothing good happening on there um there you know people say tour you know it's a good place for people in countries that you know don't have a voice or can't get to the internet uh because their their, that country blocks out internet access to certain sites you know it's good for them uh to to, you know be able to have a voice and and speak um but for us you know in america that have you know complete and unfettered access to the internet there's no reason to go on the dark web do you feel that the united states law enforcement has enough assets at this moment to monitor the nefarious conduct on the dark web not you know aside from the positive use that it can serve in those countries that you just mentioned do we have a good handle on the volume right now we have a handle. I don't know a good handle. There, you know, I, I ask any cyber cop, they, they you know need more at more time. Um, you know, between the ransomware cases and, and the way cybersecurity is really exploding these days, um, I don't think there's ever enough time uh, or enough af- assets. So they don't. I'd never say there's enough, um, but but they do have a, a good handle on it uh, as far as knowledge base now. Um, you know, cryptocurrency isn't a mystery anymore. Um, Tor isn't a mystery anymore. So the knowledge base has grown um, for investigators to kind of understand what's happening. Um, whether they can stop what's happening, I don't know. But, uh, but, but they're trying every day. Those guys are doing a great job. Stay with us. More of the Fox True Crime podcast after this. You mentioned the lessons that you learned from Anonymous. What lessons did you learn from the Silk Road investigation? Um, you should probably play to, play better uh, together. Um, I talk about the deconfliction meeting and all that. We probably could have done, handled that much better. Um, you know, the, it's a team. It's a, a team always takes us down. Like my, my name's on the, a lot of the Silk Road stuff, but it, like I said, it was a huge team of people that took this whole case down. There, you know, I was in San Francisco. Uh, I sent three guys out to Iceland, and they actually handled you know the taking down of the server, putting up the splash page. Um, that was the page we put up in place of Silk Road, so criminals would know that they, you know the u.s government had taken over and they actually took the cryptocurrency too so my it seems like my part was easy uh just doing the one of the prongs and these guys had to handle the other ones um but but yeah it's we play well together with each other and uh um and it, it works out a lot better and can you talk to us about the legal proceedings at all and your role in that I actually didn't testify at trial. I had left the government pro- before the trial had started. So I was in the FBI for almost 10 years. And um, w- one of the things is that there was a um, 
people were very upset about Silk Road. Um, and the takedown of Silk Road happened during a government shutdown. So the government was shut down on October 1st. And so uh, the, the the arrest was on October 3rd. Um, and I think the plan was for the attorney general and the president to announce the, the takedown of the site. But because we were in a government shutdown, then the only thing that put out there was the affidavit that I signed for Ross's arrest um, was made public. So that's how my name got out there. Um, people weren't very happy about that. Normally, the agent, case agent's name isn't isn't part of a case. It's 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 kept very quiet um, for those reasons. And they put a hit a hit out on me and uh, my children. So uh, so it wasn't. It, we had to live in a safe house for a while, um, move out of my house, and, and deal with that. So. Um, Around that same time, I, a little notoriety because of the anonymous case and then the takedown of this case, um, I was starting to get offers in the private sector. Um, and so I decided to leave the government and, and kind of do my own thing. Have all threats been managed sufficiently in your mind now, or is there still an element of risk? Um, there's, I think the risk is, is somewhat mitigated. You know, that it's been, it's been, you know, nearly 10 years now. Um, I still carry a gun to this day. Um, uh, so, you know, for my own protection and, and I, I live a very secure lifestyle. Um, I don't publish, you know, uh, social media sites and that sort of thing. Um, so, so I try to take, you know, take the risk away. Um, but I'm very conscious of, you know, half the internet still probably doesn't care for me. Mm. Because when you say people were upset about the takedown of Silk Road, I envision it being two groups of people. There are the criminals who are unhappy that their um, marketplace was destroyed and their cryptocurrency seized. And then that law enforcement was upset because of the way that your name and identity was compromised, as well as the lack of, of acknowledgement for the team effort involved. Is that an accurate summary? Yeah, uh, and then just general sense, people like with more of a libertarian type uh, mindset um, mm -hmm. was very you know open to the site that you know um, that you know it's your body, you should be able to ingest whatever drugs you want. And so like the idea of you know a drug marketplace being available online, um, you know a lot of people use say that you know it's much easier and much safer to buy drugs and have them shipped to your house versus going down to a, a street corner and maybe getting shot trying to buy drugs um so so the idea of it they they, they didn't like silk road going away but little did they know if they just waited a little bit more time you know a uh, hundred sites would open and replace it right um just to hone in on this point sure regardless if you would separated from the government at that point, why wasn't your testimony vital to his prosecution, given you were such a sort of important one of, of many important, um, but your own slice of the pie there? Why didn't uh, you testify? Or was it because your identity had been compromised and you at that time were in a safe house under protection? No, at that time, I wasn't in a safe house. Jared, uh, Jared testified for Jared. Jared was still an agent at the time. And okay. it was just a prosecutorial decision to put, uh, you know, a, a current agent on the stand. And, and, you know, through, um, you know, most of the investigative steps, you know, Jared was sitting there right with me. Is there anything that you would change about the way that the case was handled other than this collaboration that you discussed? Um, because the way that it, it was managed and the way that it was handled, which sounds you know, exciting at times and the crosswalk pass and the, the collaboration with Iceland and the like sounds like it was really an incredibly well executed investigation that occurred at a brisk clip through no fault of also, I would say, Ulbricht's who left massive clues for you to find. But really, it's an incredible example of the law enforcement's caliber and your ability and your efforts um, your determined, painstaking commitment to getting the guy. Once you got the what, 
you are finding the who. So to me, it's, it's like A plus. Is there anything else that you would have changed, however? I mean, so at, at Ross's sentencing, I did go to Ross's sentencing and there was a father that sat there and talked about his son um, had bought drugs on Silk Road uh, and died. Uh, he had overdosed from the drugs. Um, and, you know, just sitting there and doing the quick math in my head, it was the time that he, he purchased the drugs between finding the server and the takedown of the server. Um, and so that's, you know, that's very difficult. I still grapple with that every every day. Um, uh, you know, whether, you know, is it worth it to, you know, was was finding Ross and, you know, lopping the head off of this, this, you know, under this, this criminal activity was it worth it or just taking the server down um would that would that boy still be alive um i don't know i mean i I try to rationalize it and say that uh you know the site would have just popped back up i mean ross had backups of the server um and if we would have taken down the server in iceland he could have had another server up within 24 hours um so maybe not maybe that that's me just uh rationalizing i don't know but but i things like that bother me um that that's the only one that really comes to mind. But because of your amazing service, there were no more overdoses, no more fatalities from Silk Road and from Dead Pirate Roberts. So you're you you did an amazing job. This the team did an amazing job. Operation. The it was, it was a team effort. Job. Thank you so much, Chris. Such an honor to have you here today and hear your story. It's so gripping. Um, thank you for your service, of course. Is there any last message you'd like to share? Um. No, that that's it. I, thanks for having me on. Um, I, if I could pip a product, that'd be great. Uh, yeah. uh, I so uh, during the anonymous case, I arrested a guy named Hector Montsegur. He was Sabu. He was the leader of Anonymous, the head hacker of Anonymous. Um, he faced uh, 125 years in jail for his all his hacking he did. Um, I worked with him for about nine months. Uh, he and uh, at the end, the judge thanked him for his service. We stopped about 300 hacks into the U.S. government and thousands of hacks in businesses. Um, and now Hector and I do do, do a podcast together called hacker in the fed um so if you want to hear about you know stories or cyber news from sort of uh, two different perspectives from the fed and, uh, and a guy who used to break into thing um you know new podcasts every thursday that sounds fantastic it's like the fox and the hound cyber yeah. style yeah it's fun it's uh you know the catch me if you can type thing of cyber yeah that's exciting thank you we can't wait to listen to that of course thank you for your time and again your service chris and we wish you the best with your podcast thanks emily appreciate the time Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.